Welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungru. Organisations across the globe are working to improve their understanding and delivery of diversity, equity and inclusion policies. Noah Gaffney is the Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation. In an article she wrote last year, she asked, do your DEI efforts consider age, class and lived experience? I began the interview by asking Noah what the interconnected challenges are that we could be facing in the workplace. So there are a number. When we think about the future of work, there are so many conversations that are very privileged around how do we return to work in a hybrid environment or what is the future of work going to look like in terms of automation. And and I think oftentimes we forget to think about those who will be left behind or those that didn't have the privilege to work from home and were actually frontline workers at grocery stores or driving Ubers. And so I think we really need to think about those issues more from a an equity lens, as well as issues like health. Health equity is a big issue. We don't really talk about the differences in life expectancy between communities of color and white communities in the States and also elsewhere. Uh, There are a number of similar issues. Climate change, we can think about climate justice, which is how climate refugees will be greater and greater in the coming years because people who live in the most vulnerable areas tend to be poorer. So those are a number of issues that we need to think about. And that's why I see a great opportunity here to really marry the two. And I think it's something which is still emerging, but very, very important. So then how does Rutgers get involved in that, particularly the center obviously that you manage? So our center focuses on five themes, and we base that off of our four pillars of corporate social innovation. So we really take a look at this lens through what can companies do to make an impact in accordance with the overall environment and also in conjunction with other sectors. So, but we really look at how the private sector can take the lead and we see four opportunities for that. So the first is aligning profit and purpose, which many people call creating shared value or uh, social enterprise, right? So there are different kinds of ways that companies can actually uh, make a profit while also creating social change. Uh, The second one is advocating for social issues. And we really see CEOs, particularly in the States do this more and more. Um, Many of them took stances on the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, There was an issue here a couple of years ago called a bathroom bill where transgender individuals weren't really allowed to use bathrooms at work. You know, they they were requested to use bathrooms at work of their sex at birth, not the sex, uh, the gender that they identified with later on. So um, many companies took a stance on that. And so we see advocating for social issues as another one. Of course, there's that traditional aspect of giving back to society. So corporate social responsibility, philanthropy, and volunteering. And then the final one is one that really ties into the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation because it's really about creating positive business practices. And that means that your business practices internally in the organization match what you're trying to achieve externally as a socially impactful company. So those include things like Do you have a diverse workforce? Are you providing the appropriate benefits and services to all of your employees and all of your contract workers? And how are you treating the gig economy workers around your company 
what does your supply chain look like, right? So these are the four pillars that we look at when it comes to corporations. And when we layer diversity, equity, and inclusion on top of that, we have a number of things that we focus on from climate justice and health equity to the future of work, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion through this multiple diversities lens, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And finally, shared prosperity. So how do we make sure that we don't leave people behind as the economy continues to grow? One of the things that I find very interesting about what you, you're saying there is it, it, it seems or it sounds to me as though corporate social innovation has the potential to go toe-to-toe, head-to-head with conventional capitalism. Is there a possibility um, or am I kind of imagining it from what you're saying? I think capitalism is evolving and I think it's moving more towards this understanding that actually Corporate social innovation is good business. It's not just the right thing to do. It's also the sound thing to do. There's some great research out there uh, from our academic director, Mike Barnett, about uh, corporate reputation being a long-term success factor for organizations. Uh, We also see that companies that are more diverse and have more diverse leadership teams outperform their peers. So we're seeing a lot of these emerging stats around how socially responsible business is actually doing better. And I think that's a very compelling argument for many proponents of traditional capitalism, if you will. One of the main reasons uh, to chat to you, of course, is to talk about the paper that you had written, which is, do your DE&I efforts consider age class and lived experience. Can you explain the title first of all, please? Sure. So we really think about, we tend to think about diversity, equity, and inclusion through the lens of traditional factors like race and ethnicity, gender, disability, sexual orientation, and religion, right? Those are the ones, at least in the States. And I think there are variations of these themes in other countries as well where we really look at diversity through this lens. Now, unfortunately, what we're seeing is that efforts and progress has really stalled, even though we're making attempts to become more inclusive. And one of the reasons for that is we're not taking into account a number of hidden diversities or things that aren't really obvious. And those include age, class, and lived experience. So I think when we think about things like that, alongside political beliefs and immigration status, those are hidden diversities or multiple diversities that we don't tend to take into account. And I think we're really missing out on building true inclusion as a result. And we know that so many of these things are interconnected. And and obviously there are, you know, political beliefs and immigration status, obviously, are two really of the the ones that jump out at me from the list that you've given. But I'm curious in a way about the fact that, you know, we're still struggling. I say we as in the larger, broader sense of we. We're still struggling to ensure that race and ethnicity, that gender, that disability, sexual orientation, religion, all these already known diversities are incorporated, perhaps that's not the right word, into our workforce so if we're already struggling we're still struggling with those is adding more diversities to the list as it were going to create more challenges for corporations for companies and for organizations 
Well, I think organizations really struggle because they don't take into account things like socioeconomic status. And so when we look at race, for example, we know that black students and other students of color tend to attend less selective institutions for their higher education. And many companies only hire from seven, eight, nine universities around the country. And so they're really missing out on top talent of color when they don't hire from these universities. So that's one example. And when we think about gender, we know that as a result of COVID, so many women dropped out of the workforce uh, to take care of family members or for other reasons that actually the gender gap has increased by a generation just because of this past year and a half. So if we don't take into account people's lived experiences, we're missing out on that talent as well. And we're not really enabling a workforce which is inclusive. So in many ways, these are things that in order to make real progress, we have to take them into account. I mean, it's not all about rainbows and unicorns, is it? It's not it's not about being all kind and gentle and sweet. There is an, alter, an ulterior financial motive that comes with this, isn't there? Absolutely. And the financial imperative is there because companies know that the not only their workforce is more diverse, but their customers and consumers are more diverse than ever before. And when they don't understand their customers and consumers, because everybody on the team, everybody on the leadership team, I should say, is a cisgender white male, they're really missing out. And we see a lot of hits and misses, right? I think we can all think about tone deaf campaigns during the past couple of years or uh, businesses that just weren't able to get B2B business because they weren't able to connect with those on the other side. So there are plenty of examples here why this is just good business. Let's, let's kind of go back to Rutgers for a moment here. As you said at the beginning of the interview, it's one of the, of the US's most diverse public universities. But how then do you take what you are teaching your young students and marry it with with obstacles and challenges and and resistance from the old school who are still in business at the moment. So what's great about our institute is we don't only work with students, we actually work with leading global corporations as well. We partner with Samsung, Johnson & Johnson, Becton Dickinson, Novo Nordisk. And so we're really partnering with these big global organizations that have an understanding that their systems and processes are benefited from these ways of working. So I think what's great for us is we're able to have a top-down approach as well as a bottom-up approach. I mean, there are very obvious reasons as to why this is so important to you. But on a personal level, why champion this? So I came from a very international background. Uh, My father is Chilean, my mother is Israeli. I grew up in the US, we moved to the US when I was five, and I've also struggled with mental health issues for most of my adult life. So there's a lot there that I think is, helps me understand a number of different perspectives, even though I'm I'm immensely privileged in many other ways. So I, I also want to acknowledge that, but I think there's a sense that we're missing a lot when we don't enable people to bring their whole selves to the table. And even though I tick certain boxes, when I apply for a position, for example, 
you know, the, the disability box or the ethnicity box and the gender box, uh, nobody ever really talks to me about it afterwards. So it's really interesting how we try to categorize people to show that we're more diverse, but we're not actually being more inclusive. So I think these are the types of things that we really need to focus on in terms of how do we actually not just bring people into the organization, but make sure that they're able to thrive in an organization. And how would you do that? That's where I think the multiple diversities lens comes into play. Are you asking the right questions? Are you creating the right accommodations? Is this an ongoing conversation or is this just a tick the box exercise? Oftentimes I see so many companies hire a student of color, you know, one student of color per incoming class who went to the Ivy League school, who went to the boarding school previously, and they feel like they're doing a great job. And then they, they wonder why other employees don't feel included, right? So I think it's really difficult to to create these inclusive environments where people not just are hired, but they stay, they're promoted, they thrive, um, they're connected to customers and consumers. So I think there's so much here, which is interrelated. And if we treat this as a tick the box exercise, which many organizations, to be honest, have done, right? They've hired a chief diversity officer and, and they've kind of washed their hands of this. So, and that's something that our students said as well. When we interviewed them in, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, we asked them what they thought. And so many of them just said, it's great that you hired a chief diversity officer who's a person of color, but if that's all you're doing, that's not enough. But how did you, as an institution, respond to their kind of, well, yeah, all right, you tried your best, but let's move on moment. So I think it's really about offering executives the opportunity to listen to our students and vice versa. So one of the multiple diversities is age, and we see that both people on the age spectrum are really struggling in the workforce for different reasons. And so similar to how many organizations during COVID had young people virtually on board with those who are much more tenured in the organization and those who are much more tenured in the organization may have felt less comfortable with things like Zoom in the beginning. And they were mentored by younger employees who were trained on Zoom and Slack and it was much more intuitive for them. I think we can do the same thing around conversations around racial equity and social justice because we have, at least with our students, a very diverse group of young people who are primarily students of color who have very strong beliefs about this and they're also very respectful in the way that they share those beliefs so I think for those executives that are open to listening there's a lot that they can gain there as well. One of the things that uh, was on your list that you sent me was of course disability and disability happens to be one of those topics that isn't dealt with to my mind at any rate as much as religion as much as race as much as gender as much as sexual orientation how do you think including that within that diversity lens and narrative can help corporations so with hidden diversities like mental health for example we know that this is an epidemic as well, and we know that it's been worsened by COVID. And a lot of companies, for example, have a wellness, mental health 
awareness week or something like that, but they're not really willing to have conversations in their team around how people are really doing. And I think that's something that, that can be done. And I think there are varying levels of challenges around mental health and, and people who are really struggling often are afraid to say something because they're afraid of being judged. And so I think it's really important that we start focusing on how do we reduce the stigma and how do we have open conversations at work? And I think with neurodivergence as well, Elon Musk sharing his you know, experience with being on the spectrum on Saturday Night Live was, was groundbreaking. And I think we really need to change the stereotypes around what disability looks like and how we can think about not necessarily the positive aspects, but that there are so many, so many successful individuals who are thriving, but just need certain accommodations in order to do it. Obviously, with your position, you do take the personal experience, you take the, the theoretical knowledge that you've gained and you take the practical, you mix it all up, you write papers. So with this paper that you've written that uh, was featured in the Harvard Business Review, do your DE and I efforts consider age, class and lived experience? Once you've written that and it's appeared in the Harvard Business Review, congratulations, then what? What are you going to do next with this information? Sure. So this is being turned into a book, which is very exciting. And I think it will provide people with a lot of tangible applications of how to approach this. And also some really interesting anecdotes around how can we think about this differently? And what are some of the key things we should know? Because obviously, part of the challenge is that so many people are even afraid to touch this subject. They're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. They're worried about cancel culture. And they don't really know where to start. And I think there are some great books out there and they're so important to really enable us to be reflective. But I think there's very little out there which is intersectional. And so if we're going to touch upon all of these different factors, we need to know how to do it appropriately. How do you try to encompass those people who are already marching to the beat of your drum and those people who are going to resist it? Well, I think even those who are marching to the beat of this drum have a long way to go. So I think we all have immense amount of privilege. Most of us do who are in this space and, and trying to learn more because I think we're just becoming cognizant of that privilege. And so we're really trying to really make up for lost time. So I think there's there's still a lot of work to be done even amongst those who are quote unquote more woke. Um, but beyond that, I also think collectively we're not doing a great job of reaching out to the other side. Now, of course, there are boundaries in terms of if somebody is saying something racist or sexist or engaging in highly inappropriate behaviors, we still need to acknowledge that as, as completely unacceptable. So I think there is a line that we draw, but also we're really intolerant of people with different religious, uh, you know, political beliefs, for example. I think political beliefs is one where we're really seeing this polarization and this lack of willingness to engage. And I would like to challenge people to say, how can we do better? 
And a great example of this is I was attending a global conference a couple of years ago. I was speaking to one of the organizers and they really wanted somebody from a different part of the political spectrum, somebody that had voted for Donald Trump or somebody that had voted for Brexit and they couldn't find anybody in their network. And I just thought that's, that's unfortunate because we can do better. And I think it was a social impact conference. And even though I, I very much disagree with many of those policies and decisions, and I sit in a very different part of the political spectrum, there are people on the other side who are doing good work. And I think we also need to explore that as well and uh, reach out to them more because I think this increased polarization is just something that is becoming more and more problematic. You've mentioned the word privilege a number of times. And of course, you know, the last year and a half has been eye-opening for everybody. And the word privilege has become, is being used a great deal by people. Some people know why they're using it. And some people I think are saying it because they're hearing other people saying it. But do you feel that perhaps a little bit like unconscious bias that it, it becomes a catch-all term that people start flinging around without truly understand why they're saying it? And do you think that can actually be damaging to your cause, as it were? I think we need to come to this work with a level of authenticity. And if we don't acknowledge our privilege and we don't acknowledge our unconscious biases, we're not doing the work. So there's an aspect there of, if you're really thinking about it, and you're dealing with it and you're grappling with how that interrelates and how you see the world and, and all of the things that have come easier for you as a result, then I think that's really constructive. So I don't think it's an easy way out if people are willing to do the work and really think about how unconscious bias and privilege have been present and prevalent throughout their lives. That was Noah Gaffney, the Executive Director of the Rutgers Institute for Corporate Social Innovation and a Fellow of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation and also how to apply for our Master's Programme by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter and YouTube.